1: Welcome to Real Vision's daily briefing. We are coming to you live from London and the Cayman Islands. My name is Emil Kalinowski, but much more importantly, we're joined by, with, Isabella Kaminska. Isabella, in the summer of 2020, were you approached by a source who said, quote, we are sitting on the precipice of biological warfare and nobody in the media will cover the story.
2: Yes. I was, indeed.
1: Now, stick with me, ladies and gentlemen. We're not going to be focusing on biological warfare, but we're going to be talking about information, how we consume it as investors, as well as how it's disseminated. And I can't think of a better person to talk to than Isabella. Now, Isabella, you pursued this story. Uh, you went back, to, you found intrigue from the Cold War, biological research facilities from around the world, dual use technology. It was a great story, but I believe it was never published until very, very recently. Tell us a little bit about how people probably know you, what position you're in right now, and a little bit of the background of the story.
2: So I'm formerly the editor of FT Alphaville at the Financial Times and uh, I'm now heading up my own venture the blind spot um, the hyphen blindspot.com so I've recently gone independent and uh, <laughs> and, and I guess um, Alphaville was the sort of place where we could experiment a lot with um type of reporting we did and uh, it was for a long time i would say and i think i still maintain that it was the best place in journalism um to work and we really were able to push the envelope on all sorts of um interesting ways of doing journalism um but i think times have kind of evolved i think um Recently, I think this last week, even um, the New York Times sort of put out an opinion piece um, saying even I mean, even the New York Times has kind of said that there is an issue with free speech in America in the journalistic field there. And I don't think it's that different in the UK, frankly. Um, and I don't think it's like a, you know, a lot of people will um maybe jump to conclusions i don't think it's a sort of malevolent conspiracy or anything like that what i do think is that there is a certain risk aversion going on within newsrooms um and that story is a a good example of it because the idea of covering uh the wuhan lab leak origin um Oh, well, what sorry the 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 covid origin story from the perspective of potentially um it being a lab leak uh, was inc- it was totally taboo um and for months and months anyone raising it would be kind of dismissed as uh, as a potential conspiracy theory uh, person um and that's a reluctance i think fed through all newsrooms so I don't think it was like the FT was particularly uh unique in in that situation um I personally you know was of the opinion that there was I was watching the story independently and on Alphaville it wasn't really my patch it was just something I was looking at and I was thinking is there a way to do it maybe from the farmer side of things um and I um increasingly kind of uh realized that there was a lot of very very much public domain evidence and and um you know relevant facts that were being overlooked uh, uh, by the broader media couldn't really understand why and I thought it was 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 very strange that there was this sort of stigma going on um so I did I, I did my own informal inquiries and you know I think within newspapers there's also kind of structural issues so a story like that you know falls, it's very hard to sometimes figure out who has um any sort of uh i guess command over a story like that whether it's the investigations desk whether it's the farmer desk you know you know it really um it really depends on how the newsroom is carved up and, and organized uh so i Alphaville was certainly not the sort of place that would usually cover that sort of story um but and I guess the pecking order within any institution, you know, it really depends where you are in that pecking pecking order, whether you can push push for a story to be done or not. So, you know, I did what I could to sort of try and vocalize the idea that we should be covering the story, at least investigating. I thought there was enough evidence, or at least enough interesting um, uh, material that warranted investigation at the very at the very least um even if it was to debunk it i thought it was important to look at given this sorry about my pinging um and yeah and i think there was a just just a general reluctance to look at it um and then eventually when the story broke back in may 2021 um everyone suddenly then leaped on the story but even then there was a sort of reluctance to tie the background into the current situation or how it fitted into um uh, the broader picture of sort of biosecurity and the um investments that have been made across the board um it's a background story there's been lots of books written about it there's there's it's there's so much rich material but of course we, we all have a very um limited sort of uh, memory uh, about certain things so I, I, and, and tying everything together wasn't being done um, and I thought it was a bit strange that that wasn't the case, which is why I kind of um, have finally kind of put everything together and I've, I've published it on, on my site, um, sort of a year's worth of research, including the background and including how we got to sort of the gain of normalization of gain of function research, the outsourcing to China the risks, um, the sort of associated risks and the and the and the norms that emerged in that space. So if you're interested in reading that, please do uh subscribe to The Blind Spot. Um it has been a year's worth of work and it is expertly sourced and I have, you know, I have endeavored to ensure it is um as level headed, it's you know incredibly I'm 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 going right, you know, I did try to go to the best sources um, and Hopefully, it, it is um, you know worth worth
1: a read. <laughs> it is worth a read, Isabella. I enjoyed it very much. And as you said, you started out by focusing on what might have happened out of Wuhan and the COVID pandemic. But the work you did was outstanding for just something that happened right now, setting the context for biological warfare labs, research labs. can we tell the difference so in the ukraine the news came out from authorities on the russian side and then on the western side and from it's there's misinformation or disinformation how can we how can we decipher which one is is the truth what is the truth we're not going to delve into those details but your your piece helped me put everything in context and better appreciate the And be a little bit even more askance whenever I hear or see a a quick hit piece by a fact checker. Your piece required a lot of research just to put put it all into context. Uh, If you have anything to say about that, let me know. Otherwise, we can move on to more financial media topics.
2: Let's let's move on. But I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad that you know. I think that that context is out there because I think it's important. And I, all all I will say is that I think the key thing about that story is is ambiguity, and ambiguity continues to kind of dominate the field of the biological warfare, which is unlike any other um, sort of mass. Weapons, you know, uh, scenario, uh, mass weapons of destruction scenario, whether it's nuclear, or chemical um, warfare, much it's much easier to sort of have proof of um, uh, sort of malevolent intent in those other fields. Biological warfare is far more nuanced, and there's so much more ambiguity. And I think that is my key takeaway. And I don't draw any conclusions. I just think it's important to have all the facts so that you don't rush to conclusions.
1: you have taken a step outside of the mainstream media. You're not the only one. I have noticed that lots of individuals from the mainstream media are leaving. I can think of some of them off the top of my head, but because we're live, I'm gonna blank on many other names, but Barry Weiss, Carrie Lake, and I've already blanked. I'm already panicking, Isabella. They're leaving. For reasons I think that might be similar to what you explained as well, but most, if not everyone, is from the mainstream socio political point of view. That's why they're leading. Let's hone in on the financial side, the business media, the financial press. Why is it the same? Could we apply the same lessons that we apply broadly to the mainstream media and say they're not, they're, they're, they don't want to upset advertisers. They want to they don't want to upset the authorities. Is that same thing happening in the financial press, or are there different incentives there that we need to think of as investors?
2: So i um I can't speak for the motivations of like my you know um, superiors at the FT. um I can only speak about what I experienced in my own perception of things. and you know i I am still incredibly, um, you know, i i i i'm pausing a little bit because i want to be diplomatic but it's not just that i want to be diplomatic i think the ft is still one of the most excellent sort of news resources out there there are some outstanding reporters and they're they you know that really do amazing work i think the issues in some institutions maybe more so at the ft than say at the new york times are kind of bureaucratic sort of behind the scenes um forces that 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 creates a sort of risk aversion at the m- middle management sort of side or on the in the editorial filters, and I can understand why that is, and I can see why in the, in the broader context um, of what's going on, it might be um, very kind of uh, logical to be um, sort of politically correct or whatever. But you know, my view is that in finance, finance, financial markets can't afford to be. Um, they have to be realistic about what's really going on in the world, um, and you're going to lose money if you don't take a very broad brush view, a, a kind of dispassionate view, I think, as well. Um, you can't get, you can't afford to get sort of embroiled in all the emotional stuff that is going on these days. Um, and I, I feel like that maybe the FT and and maybe some other <laughs> financial newspapers as well. Have lost sight of that um, because of the pressures, the economic pressures as well, to satisfy click count and getting as broad an audience as possible. And when you're trying to, you know, chase clicks and chase subscribers, <laughs> you do end up sort of um, maybe sort of following stories that you think the market wants rather than what you know are really reflective of the situation out there. Um, because the reality is in finance. <laughs> as I keep saying, capital allocation wins wars as well. Like it's not just boots on the ground and it's all very well to um, to have you know white propaganda, so to speak, to, to boost the morale of your own side. And, and I get why that happens and I get why that's important. But if you start believing as a financial investor in your own white propaganda and say, it leads you to suspect that um, you're doing much better in the war than you really are, well, that might then cross over into underinvestment in, you know, defense stocks and then in, in undersupply of de- defense equipment that you need. Um, and then you lose the war because of under, you know, of, of misallocation of capital. So you as an investor, I think you have to be pretty dispassionate about it. You have to be neutral and you have to be, um, you know, frankly, um aware of both sides of the the propaganda table, because if you're not, there are consequences. So that's my general feeling. And I think that some of the um, financial papers are a little bit, um, they're losing sight of that because unlike say in the Iraq war or in any of the other kind of last big wars that we've experienced, news then was much more segmented and so you wouldn't necessarily like the popular press like the bbc or whatever that was your day-to-day um media outlet and that could you know that could afford to like push white propaganda very forcefully because the ft or the kind of more highbrow press was a select market and the two groups didn't like the ft wasn't chasing that broad brush market and it wasn't interacting on social media in the same way that it does now Um, And I think that that is why um, these days, if you want proper kind of financial um, insight uh, that can can help you make good decisions uh, as an investor, you might have to move away from the mainstream press into the sort of smaller publications like mine. Uh, Sorry to kind of self promote a little bit, because actually that small scale allows you to speak more freely and if you can speak more freely and more pragmatically and uh, more dispassionately, of, without getting like crucified on the internet about things, then you can um, y- you can be more truthful about the situation. Um, so your low profile actually, in some ways, <laughs> helps. Um, obviously, if you become Joe Rogan, then that 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 kind of you, there's a diminishing uh, return on that front. But but in that sweet spot when you're and you're, you're providing actionable intelligence, but you're not like getting the kind of heat from the crowd. I think that's a really um, interesting and valuable uh, position to be be with in the financial kind of commentariat space.
1: I feel like we're going back in time to the London coffee shop of century and the pamphlets. Okay, we're and gonna do exact- is- We're gonna do exactly what you just said, Isabella. Now, for the audience, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to answer some of your questions later. We're also going to show a video from Real Vision, but right now, we're just going to take a little trip through the mainstream headlines, and Isabella, you said we need to know, as investors, what's really going on in the world. Maybe this is what's really going on in the world. You let me know which articles, which thoughts you want to comment on, or let us know if something's not being covered that you think should be coming to our attention. So right now, I've, I pulled it open. Bloomberg, here's just a couple of headlines. You jump in any time. Powell says, Fed is ready to raise rates faster if needed. Uh, Apple suffers widespread outage, hitting iCloud, Music, Maps. Nike heads for biggest quarterly drop since 2008. The Financial Times, Powell says, Fed prepared to move more aggressively to tighten policy. Uh, Bloomberg also, oil surges with growing supply fears as EU considers a Russian ban. Uh, Let's see, Wall Street Journal, Fed will consider more aggressive rate increases. Trading economics, oil jumps as EU considers ban on Russian imports. Uh, Powell signals further and faster hikes if necessary. 10 year US Treasury yield hits 30 month, 33 month high. Anything in there that jumps out at you, either by omission or commission that you wanna talk about?
2: No, I mean, I think the commodity story remains absolutely front and central, front and center of, of what investors should be paying attention to. I think it feeds right into the inflation story, and I'm continuously sort of surprised by how um, so much of the economic commentary at space fails to kind of. Um, account for the very sensitive connection between commodity pricing and commodity availability and um and liquidity and i and i and and sort of um you know one thing i'm permanently surprised by is that they there seems to be this perception that we can still print our way out of this problem and i keep saying well you can't because this is a supply side issue with commodities and if there's a shortage there's a shortage there's just nothing that you can print you know you can print money till the cows come home, but it's not going to help you acquire those commodities because all—all all things being relative, everything will reprice. Um, the shortages are w- what is driving this issue, and that's very similar to um, the situation, say, in 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 other sort of hyperinflationary um, scenarios. I thought, I thought another um, thing that is worth um, talking about is just the sort of relative sort of calmness of the stock market in relative terms um like why hasn't it sold off more and I think that again is I know you um you Emil, are more well Jeff Snyder your your colleague in 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 other in other fields um sort of are more more um uh, skeptical about this but um I do think that um you know equity prices go up in an inflationary environment especially kind of like losing control of you know the money market so to speak uh because that's the place you get the most value from and when you look at sort of historical markets that have suffered from hyperinflation or inflation and i'm not saying it's going to be hyperinflation but it's certainly inflation um i think uh it's very clear that the that the stock markets do relatively well in that scenario and so you wouldn't expect stock markets to go down i actually think quite the opposite, you will continue to see them go up in that in in the current framework and commodities, meanwhile, as they get sort of constrained on the financing side, um, we will see the opening up of, you know, massive arbitrages that can't be closed, unless prices continue to escalate higher because um, you just won't to bring those commodities home you'll you will have to basically pay up through the nose in a sort of potential negative feedback loop that just returns um just forces banks to raise interest rates on and on and on. And that is to me a a really vicious circle that um we have to be very mindful of. um as for the um EU or other major markets sort of putting out a ban on on Russian commodities or oil, um, again, I think, I think we need to really consider the idea of mutual assured economic destruction. Um, I'm not at all convinced. I mean, and I find it very strange that even talking about this is sometimes perceived to be treacherous. But um, I genuinely am not convinced that we, the West can withstand the, uh, the kind of consequences of what we are enforcing on Russia. And I don't think we, in the West, Um, have the same sort of capacity to withstand the shocks that, say, the Russians do, um, not least because they have been through a massive, you know, um, financial crisis a couple of times in recent, you know, memory. Um, So the average sort of person of my age in Russia will have some muscle memory of of what happens in a total financial collapse. Um, That means they're probably more resilient to it. They're probably um, more likely to have a contingency um i think even if we in the long term can can overcome this i think the shock for us in the in the short term is going to be much harder because the higher you are the lower you have the the, the further you have to fall so these um comparatives that i keep keep hearing oh you know russian gdp is only so much and blah 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 compared to the west that might be true but i also think that um the shock that is being induced on the commodity sides is completely underappreciated because commodities commodities are a form of like I, i compare it to like the oxygen that um is needed to to power your circulation and, and and keep you alive. It doesn't take a lot of oxygen to, to to basically kill you if if you're deprived of it. And that and that is similar with commodities and the overall kind of circulation of economic finance and, and liquidity. that the, the liquidity of the finance is irrelevant. Like you just constrain commodities a little bit and it can send a shock through the entire system that, that impacts the whole economy. And in that context, um, I think having a smaller GDP in some ways makes you more resilient um, than if you have a big GDP. So those are my, my sort of uh, very knee-jerk questions uh, Thoughts on 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 those headlines.
1: Excellent thoughts, Isabella, and I I like particularly the angle you bring up about asking questions here in the West, and and then the feedback from some people in the media is that it's treacherous that maybe you're a a Putin apologist or that you're on the KGB payroll. I know I I was accused of that, to which I responded, I haven't been paid by the KGB for years. My
2: little joke. Uh, yeah. I yeah, no, I, let, I
1: think it's... let me let me sure. interrupt just a moment. And there but it doesn't it doesn't just apply to the West and the media. You might also the leaders of these countries may also be facing the same thing. And I bring this up I know because we have a video available that we're gonna play for the audience right now. This video is available to our essential plus and pro members on Real Vision, and it's gonna show it's the context is what information is Putin receiving? And if he's not receiving the right information, because maybe it's considered treacherous to tell them information that may not satisfy
3: and may not help. Him. I think uh, he thought this was going to be easier than um, any person who had an objective. <laughs> view of, of Ukraine would have uh, would have advised him. But it seems like he got some uh, bad advice or made some really bad assumptions um, and was really preparing for this operation. And this tells us something about the way Russian decision-making has become so narrow in recent years. Um, this was like, we will run like a compartmentalized black op. In other words, like not even the soldiers knew where they were going or what they were doing until they got inside Ukraine They were lied to, you know, and which is not a good idea to prepare a force for a conflict like this. Um, Many of his ministers clearly didn't know. The propaganda machine clearly had no idea. Um, And uh, I don't think they, whatever networks they had in Ukraine, they didn't activate because they didn't know either. Um, So it was sort of kept very, very close hold. And you can't really conduct an operation effectively of this magnitude without having... You know a broader set of actors involved in implementing it um, and that was I think one of the um, things we've learned about Russian you know the way decision making has happened uh, on this issue in recent months and way presumably it's going to happen going forward because if anything, the decision itself has further personalized the the regime, the political system in Russia
1: getting an objective view make decisions, getting the right information. Isabella, that's the key. I know I was listening to a recent show with uh, Jim Rogers, the investor, the famed investor, was on the George Gammon show. And George asked him, how can we do it as investors? What do we do? And Jim said, you know what you, you should do? Get your information from in different international sources. Hear what Al Jazeera is saying, what BBC is saying, what the Wall Street Journal is saying, and so forth. But Isabella, one of those options, Jim said, would have been RTTV, and that's no longer available in Britain. Am I correct? Is that, is that wrong?
2: No, that's correct. So, you know, it is, like, as they say, truth is the first casualty of war, and we are definitely in the midst of, like, some you know, clear-cut sort of information control um, strategy from from our governments. Um, And uh, we can't access RT and we can't access all sorts of other, like most other Russian um, sort of sites have been suppressed in some shape or form. So I think um, it is harder than ever to get the other perspective. And I think that is a loss to... um, especially investors, because like I said, it doesn't it's not a question of um, patriotism or like uh, loyalty to be able to um, dispassionately analyze the picture from both perspectives. Actually, you know, and I've been saying this in the blind spot for a couple of weeks now is that what I want to focus on is a is this sort of incredibly, you know, logical analysis that focuses in on what what is really happening and, and and trying to cut through where the propaganda might be sort of misleading our our own selves. I'm concerned about that because I remember the Iraq War and I remember very much how we were, you know, made to believe that we were doing so well, that we were going to be treated as heroes, as liberators. Um, And then on the ground, like, it turned out that that wasn't the case. And many years later, you know, after so many um insurgencies and whatever um I think now it's 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 clear-cut that that was that was our own propaganda very much misleading us and I get why it's there like I said it, it's for morale purposes but it it doesn't really pay um to to fall for it if you're an investor because if you'd got the Iraq war correct um I think you would have probably made more money from calling it right than from perceiving it as a mission accomplished sort of situation as we were led to believe.
1: I've got some questions from the audience. Goncalo G. from the exchange. Is there any real possibility that Europe stops depending on Russian gas in less than one year? Also, what happens if Biden bans U.S. energy exports? Maybe the first
2: question? Um, I, th- I, I kind of think, you know, that policymakers are now under... I... I <laughs> I don't know if they're acting logically or not. I mean, I I would hope that NATO and that, you know, officials are uh pragmatic enough to know that if we cut ourselves off from Russian gas and oil, that this is gonna be potentially so destabilizing that it makes it it, it actually loses the war in the long run. Um, I would I would hope that that's the case but i have a feeling that politicians are currently more led by opinion polls and 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 pandering to the crowd and sort of the jingoistic mood than they are to practical reality and in fact generally i'm very scared about knee-jerk reactions um that escalate things rather than de-escalate them at the end of the day my view you know my concern is for um for the for for the lives of ukrainians for for the lives of russians for the lives of everybody i i personally i mean that might be a very hippie (laughs) you know overly liberal thing to do um and and ironically like i think it's the liberals that are very much uh opposed to my stance um but i um you know i i think every life matters and and i i i would rather if we didn't you know, if you recall, just two years ago, we were making huge sacrifices to lo- to, to make sure no lives were lost in the pandemic. Um, massive, social wide sacrifices. Um, so I I think we have to be pragmatic about the trade offs. And sometimes, yes, of course, what Putin is doing is outrageous, illegal, and 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 I do not condone it in any shape or form. But um, is it worth like creating even more disaster and self you know self harm? Um, that can possibly ruin lives forevermore and in the worst case scenario lead to a kind of nuclear you know mutual assured destruction situation no I don't think that's worth it at all
1: difficult difficult these are the this is the era when those sort of errors mistakes spin out of control in different moments in time previous eras you wouldn't expect to see something like this but I feel that this is a time where we have to be very concerned about exactly what you just said there at the end. Another question here from Valban Kapaza on YouTube. How much political pressure is there on mainstream media to show or not to show certain aspects?
2: Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not in the mainstream media right now but I can recall, like, you know, uh, how it was in terms of other wars. I mean, I think one of the most important things is, like, the fact is that there have been wars there are so many wars there is so, so much loss of life in the world um and I, I do think you know obviously this this particular war has far more um relevance to european markets to european uh europeans in general and to to the world because of um, the potential kind of nuclear escalation involved but um i do i do think that it's it is dis- I don't want to say disproportionate because I, I I do think it's very important to cover this. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think it's it's we overlook maybe that from the perspective of say a lot of emerging market countries that <laughs> their priorities are very different. And I think in those countries, if you if you take the Jim Rogers approach and you read Why on or um, I don't know Al Jazeera, um, maybe not so much Al Jazeera, but like certainly you know some of the African press this is not a priority for them they have much greater issues at home and we um we have to be cognizant of that and um and you know i i understand why we're doing it but whether 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 western media has the um the capacity to set the global news agenda the way it used to that's the question we should be asking because if it doesn't then the um impact of our own kind of perspective on things is going to be increasingly um, detrimental to ourselves if we're not aware of the other perspective, because there's just so many more people, you know, speaking of Dzerzhinsky, who was the former national security um, advisor to um, the Carter (laughs) presidency, he he in his book um oh god i forgot not the grand chessboard but one of his last books i think it's called second chance um warned that you know after liberalism sort of succeeded the the big new challenge it would face was the great awakening of of all these you know um of, of the global market so to speak who would become more and more engaged in the economic uh you know situation and also in global politics and would have increasingly more weight um in, in what they're saying, um having an impact on things. And I think we maybe have like strangely overlooked this um because they have they are out there, they're speaking, and we're not listening so much to those other perspectives as as perhaps we should be. But um that's not to diminish the importance of this war. I think it's hugely important. I just think um, you know, the best thing is as ever to read around and, and keep. Keep not necessarily open mind. You can, I have no problem with people having a loyalty, and, and I ha- certainly am biased myself. So in terms of you know, I'm 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 obviously Polish. I'm I've, I'm very much on the record as being anti-Putin, and and you know, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a criminal element on an on an unforeseen level there. Um, but I but I do think I owe it to myself to read around, despite that bias.
1: Isabella, we're going to wrap up because we only have a couple minutes left with a final question here from Ralph Humphrey, who comes from the Real Vision site. And he asks, what are the top three stories impacting markets that no one is talking about? I'm going to ask you to just like bullet point it. I know you can do this because this is something that you do on your site in the blind spot. You have bullet points. Here are little things that you may not have noticed, not being covered. Anything that comes to mind? Just bullet points, tell us again where we can reach you and then we'll wrap up.
2: So The number one story that I think no one has really focused on and I'm gonna write about it this week in the blind spot. So keep an eye out for it is the impact on the noble gas market um, which is a fascinating market in and of itself. And it's highly dominant in uh, Ukraine and in Russia and the supply consequences are just on another level. Um, The second one is in terms of what's happening in commodity financing and whether or not there's a potential negative feedback loop coming up um, uh, because of the way um, volatility is going to uh, feed into higher cost of doing business and therefore a um, inclination by banks to raise rates and therefore increase the cost of business and then raise rates and et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I guess the third one may be something to do with the ongoing sort of idea that Ukraine is doing so well um, relative to the Russians. I think um, the we've got to be mindful of the fact that the Russians, what what we're being told about the Russian strategy is very much from our Western perspective. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Russians are more resilient than um, the current sort of commentary is. Um, inclined to um, admit.
1: Thank you very much for joining us, Isabella. Ladies and gentlemen, you can reach Isabella on her website at the-blindspot.com, as well as on Twitter. Isabella, I don't have it memorized. Where can they reach you on Twitter?
2: I'm at Iza Kaminska, I-Z-A-K-A-M-I-N-S-K-A.
1: Excellent. And ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this podcast presentation by me. Well, you can catch more of my work with Jeff Snyder, where we do an actual podcast as opposed to a presentation live. I'm on YouTube, and you can find me on Twitter as well, where I encourage you to send all your complaints about this episode to me, at Neil Kalinowski. Thank you very much for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And tomorrow, I hope you'll be back here, because we have Warren Pies will be with Vincent Deluard.